I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Sam Gambier understood the ravages of cancer. His wife developed breast cancer and survived. His son later developed brain cancer at the age of 15 and died. And in 2020, Gambier himself succumbed to cancer. Before he died, though, Gambier, who served as division chief of the Canary Center for Early Cancer Detection and Molecular Imaging at Stanford University, hit upon an idea. Rather than hunt for cancers in the hopes of making an early diagnosis, he devised a way for them to produce synthetic biomarkers to cause them to reveal themselves. He co-founded Early, which seeks to enable the diagnosis of cancers when they are most treatable. We spoke to David Suey, co-founder and chief scientific officer of Early, about the company's synthetic biomarker technology that makes cancers visible with a PET scan, how it works, and how this has the potential to alter outcomes by enabling treatments of patients before their disease progresses. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Daniel. It's nice to, to be able to talk with you. We're going to talk about early. It's synthetic biopsy technology and how this can allow for early diagnosis of cancers. Let's start with where we are. How good are we at diagnosing cancer today? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. You know, most typically, if you think about how cancers are most typically diagnosed, you know, and many times it's, you know, suddenly the person feels unwell or they have problems eating or problems digesting, and they may have a clinical symptom that sends them to their doctor. Or in other cases, you may have um, an incidental finding. So for instance, you might fall off a ladder and break a collarbone and suddenly you're taking a chest CT and there's incidental findings. In many cases though, um, the the industry has gotten better about pre-programmed detection methodologies that that people are using. For instance, it might be mammography for breast cancer or low-dose CT if you've been a heavy smoker. Um, And certainly everyone's aware of colonoscopy. But um, most typically beyond those traditional screening methodologies, most cancers are picked up late and they're usually done uh, through incidental findings. What's the relationship between the point of a diagnosis in a cancer and treatment outcomes. How critical is early diagnosis to getting good outcomes? Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. Uh, there's several studies in which look at five-year survival rates, uh, depending upon the stage of cancer that uh, the patient is initially diagnosed with. And the numbers for stage four cancers are alarmingly small, with most being single-digit percentages that if you detect uh, a lung cancer or breast cancer by stage four, when the cancer is actually metastasized, 
um, past the point of primary tumor origin, the survival rates are incredibly small. Even if you were able to catch the cancer at stage two or stage three, we're now talking about survival rates that are, you know, several fold higher, uh, maybe two to five fold higher. And if you can catch cancers at stage one, the, the five-year survival rates and the ability to treat the cancer is amazingly pretty good. It's not that the cancer drugs that we have on the market are that bad at treating the cancer. It's that in most cases, because we catch the cancer late, the cancer's already mutated and, and it's become a very simple sort of disease and may have mutated to a very complex disease where now your tumor that's inside of you goes from having one genetic background to many different types of genetic backgrounds, making it difficult to treat as an entirety of the disease. So, you know, statistics already are out there saying if we can catch it early, we have a much better chance of being able to treat the disease early and not necessarily always implement a cure but at least have an effective strategy for managing the disease in the longer term. You, you talked about the way cancers are typically diagnosed. How much of this is a, a technology issue versus the fact that a patient won't be driven to see a doctor until a, a cancer has advanced to a, a later stage? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. It's, it's challenging. I think new technologies exist. Um, I think that with the advent of um, personalized medicine and the scientific advances that we've made um, as an industry um, and as a, a collective uh, group trying to fight cancer, there's a lot of different technologies out there. But at the end of the day, it still relies on the patient coming into their doctor and saying, yes, I need to undergo this screening. Yes, I need to, to have my colonoscopy because I'm over 50, or I need to have a mammography. Um, and so, you know, it really is a combination. And as good as the technology can be, ultimately it is driven by the patient going into their doctor and working with their physician to ensure that cancer screening does occur. So it is a very important point. Um, that none of this can happen without the patient's consent and, and seeing their physician. There have been new technologies that have emerged, notably liquid biopsies, which look for circulating DNA and body fluid. How effective are these at detecting cancer early? Yeah, I think liquid biopsies are a really great example of these newer technologies. And, and for those who may not know what a liquid biopsy is, it's simply taking a passively drawn blood sample out of your arm and looking for the presence of biomarkers, which may be indicative of cancer. And so, you know, many cases, cancers as they grow will shed proteins into the bloodstream. The tumor cells may break off and go into the bloodstream. And in some of the most common uh, technologies that are being used, the cancer cells themselves lice and release some of their uh, tumor DNA into the blood. And it's called cell-free circulating tumor DNA. And many companies and many groups are out there looking at either the presence or absence of this cell-free circulating tumor DNA or how it's methylated or how it gets modified within the body as a measure of cancer. I would say that the liquid biopsy companies have had a lot of success, particularly 
when the um, cancers are very aggressively growing or there's a lot of biomass. And, and this tends to be in stage three or stage four cancers. And it just goes to reason that as these cancers become larger and more aggressive, they turn to turn over a little bit more, putting a lot of this material into the bloodstream. The problem is, is for earlier stage cancers, the tumors don't grow as aggressively. And they may be a fraction of the size of what the cancer is, even at stage three or even stage two. And so if we're really, truly going to be effective at detecting cancer earlier, we need better, more sensitive techniques. Not that liquid biopsies don't do a great job for the later stage cancers, but their sensitivity, their ability to detect tumors falls off rapidly as these tumors get to earlier and earlier stages. That's why we believe it early that, you know, the, the technology is very good, but still likely will need to be paired up with other types of screening technologies at the end of the day to make sure that it works not just well for the later stage cancers, but, but we can truly get into stage two or stage one cancers. Before we talk about Early's approach, I'd like to take a step back and ask you about the founding of the company. Can you explain for listeners who are not familiar with Sam Gambier, who died in 2020 from cancer, who he was and how his work led to the creation of Early? Absolutely. So um, Sam Gambier was a professor at Stanford University. And um, to know Sam, he was perhaps one of the most brightest individuals that I've ever encountered in terms of creativity. But at the end of the day, he was an even better human being, which which it's hard to imagine describing somebody as incredibly brilliant. And beyond that, they're an amazing human being. But um, Sam really was, uh, you know, one of these people who just thought beyond the norm. Um, I believe he started college when, you know, he was in his teens, uh, which was a thing before we all became accustomed with Doogie Howser on TV. Um, but Sam certainly um, was one of these people uh, people that enrolled in college and subsequently did an MD-PhD early in life. Um, and as an MD-PhD, he really focused on not only treating the human body, but understanding, I believe his undergraduate degree was in physics and his PhD was in biomathematics. So, you know, very computational thinker. Um, when he was at UCLA, he worked with Michael Phelps to develop, help develop further um, uh, PET uh, as an imaging modality for cancers and other sorts of diseases. And by the time he moved to Stanford, um, Sam was producing some remarkable discoveries. Uh, you know, um, one of the ways, for instance, he was trying to increase uh, the ability to detect rare cancer signals in the blood at early stage was essentially magnetize cancer cells and then put a wire into the vein and essentially try to fish out the cancer cells by using a magnetic device to essentially enrich for that pool. He produced, you know, papers on um, whether or not we could use smart toilets as a way of having an early um, look at, at colorectal cancers. And then, you know, was working on technologies just in general that had the ability to go above and beyond. You know, it, it's, you always think of where technology is today and you think where it could be in five years. Sam was one of those people who lived at that five-year spot while the rest of us were all just trying to catch up to his ideas. So an amazing guy. Unfortunately, 
after we founded the company, um, uh, Sam uh, was one of the three co-founders. It was myself and Syriac Roding. And Sam, unfortunately, succumbed to cancer himself, which is ironic, considering this is a gentleman who who really was forefront um, at the field and and wasn't able to even uh, use the current tools that we have to diagnose cancer within himself. So we miss him dearly, um, but his DNA lives with on uh, what we do as a company constantly. You mentioned you're a co-founder of the company as well. How did you become involved in it? Yeah, it's a really interesting story. Um, prior to starting early, I was the chief scientific officer of a small Australian company that was creating gene therapies. And, um, you know, we've done some remarkable science in, the, in that different lifetime of mine. But um, one day I got a cold email reach out from our third co-founder, a gentleman named Syriac Roding, who's a serial tech entrepreneur. Um, Syriac in himself has done some amazing things uh, over his career. But, you know, Syriac reached out to me coldly through a LinkedIn email of all things. And he said, hey. Um, David, I was reading a little bit about your background, have read some about some of the work that you've done being sort of at the forefront of cutting edge gene therapy types of techniques. Sam Gambier and I are putting together a company. Um, Would you be interested in having a coffee? And I said, sure, this, you know, this sounds great. I I knew Sam by reputation. Uh, I had followed Sam's career over the last you know, 15 years and some of the amazing things he had done. And although I had not directly interacted with Sam, the ability to at least take a meeting and listen to what, what that company was going to be was, was something that I was very much interested in. So Syriac and I met over a coffee. Um, it's actually a really great story. And he starts walking me through the technology and he says, you know, David, I'm not a scientist. I'm a serial tech entrepreneur, but but let me tell you what we've been working on. And the first sheet of paper he pulled out was essentially like a Tylenol capsule that had a piece of DNA inside of it. And it was just sort of a placeholder for, you know, delivery of genetic types of constructs for the detection of cancer. And I looked at the, the drawing and I said, who would ever think about delivering DNA inside of a pill? This is ridiculous. You know, this is this I can tell this conversation is going to go nowhere. Um, until I realized that it was uh, essentially just a placeholder and sort of a metaphor for what the company ultimately would do. And, and over the course, over the next two hours, as, as Syriac and I spoke over that coffee, where we outlined the science and what the science could be and, and some of the thoughts around um, that he and Sam had already put together on how to approach some of these problems. I mean, it was still very early days. There was nothing set in stone. I became more and more intrigued. And and as the process went along, it became um, a a company that I almost couldn't stand the thought of not being involved in. And so over the next three months or so, as we continued the conversations many times with Sam joining in, uh, it became very clear to me that this was something that I wanted to do. We hadn't raised a single penny and I uh, came home one day and I told my wife, I'm quitting my job and we're starting a new company. And she wasn't necessarily thrilled with that. Um, but ultimately, I think that the promise and the idea behind this company is so powerful and is so orthogonal to other methodologies that are being used out there that it was something that I knew 
I had to be part of. And it was something that that I couldn't just let go. And so it was a very easy um, decision to sort of band together. And, and once I did come on board, that's when we made the formal decision to go ahead and launch the company. Early uses bioengineered DNA that's injected into the body to detect cancer by getting cancers to produce a synthetic biomarker. How does that technology work? Yeah, so it's, a, it's, it's very interesting. So I'll give you a, a scenario and then I'll sort of explain at a more, a slightly more detailed level. So imagine you go into your doctor's office and in your doctor's office, you receive an injection of formulated nucleic acids and it goes into your vein and it distributes randomly throughout your body. It will randomly enter a handful of healthy cells. And if they exist, will randomly enter a subset of cancer cells. But the genetic construct will only become transcriptionally active, will only start producing something if you have landed inside of a cancer cell. It will produce what we call a non-human synthetic biomarker. And now a non-human synthetic biomarker is just a protein or a form of a protein that that normally isn't expressed within the body or it's a derivation of a human protein that in its current form isn't supposed to be showing up in your body. And by, by doing so, it means that you already have a background of zero. So imagine then you take this injection and two days later you exhale limonene. Limonene is in oranges and lemons, not in human beings, unless you've eaten one. But if you take the injection and two days later you exhale limonene, you might have cancer because the cancer was forced to produce limonene. Now, that's a breath-based biomarker, and that's something we haven't worked a ton on. Instead, we're, we've been working on a, a blood-based biomarker, um, which gets secreted back out into the blood. Now, here's the powerful thing about the system. It's essentially a genetic reporter construct that only turns on in the presence of cancer. Now, let's say that we do have a blood-based biomarker and we have something in the blood that basically says, we think you have cancer because we see this biomarker being produced. Instead of waiting for the cancer to produce something, we force the cancer to produce something. But you still haven't cured the problem or you still haven't identified the primary problem, which is where that cancer is going to be located. So in step two, we swap out that blood-based biomarker for a protein that we would call a pet reporter gene, that pet reporter gene now produces an enzyme or a protein that traps the, the um, pet tracer in a very cancer-specific manner within the body. Now you've used the same platform to identify exactly where the cancer is located, which from a therapeutic sense means your doctor may be able to, to collect it and take it out, or in the future, you could even exchange that pet reporter gene for now something therapeutic. Maybe you're going to produce a protein that has the ability to produce a toxin and kill the tumor or may produce something that's going to re-stimulate the immune system and work with our current classes of drugs that we use to treat cancer to actually kill the cancer. By and large, the, the, the point of this is, is that we've produced this really elegant nucleic acid-based system that only turns on within the context of cancer using cancer activated promoters and we produce something. And that's the, the truly differential and orthogonal difference here 
from what the current technologies do. Everybody else looks for biomarkers that the cancer naturally produces. In a nutshell, we send in a molecular spy that only gets activated, only comes out of its sleeper cell if it encounters a cancer cell. And once it does so, we can program that genetic construct to now produce something that will either help us detect, locate, or kill that cancer. The issue is still when a physician would order the test to make it truly successful at detecting cancer early. What's the expectation in that regard? Yeah, it's so, you know, the, the, the technology as it's developed means that, you know, we have a, an inherent cost to the process of giving something back to the patient. So, you know, I don't believe that the technology as we develop it is going to be useful for cancer screening per se, where you've got, um, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of patients um, who are looking for the first time to determine um, if there's cancer, unless they fall into a high risk group. Instead, we believe that the technology is going to be most aptly applied to when there's an initial warning sign and doctors don't know what to do with that information. I'll give you a very specific example. So, Daniel, imagine you were a, a smoker that smoked two or three packs a day for the last 30 years. Um, chances are that your physician is going to, once you turn 50 years old, is, is going to order you into the clinic and is going to say, hey, Daniel, it's time we get a low-dose CT to take a look at your lungs. And, and low-dose CT is a very quick an easy way to take a radiographic picture of your lungs. And chances are, if you've had, if you've been a lifelong smoker, that there's going to be multiple lung nodules that are going to show up in your lungs. Now, lung nodules show up in your lungs for a wide variety of reasons. In most cases, in fact, in 94 to 96% of the cases, these are just collections of immune cells, old immune cells that have formed little scarified tissues because you've essentially repeatedly have exposed your lungs to, to damaging smoke over the years and, and all the uh, chemicals that, that are associated with that. So you may come back with a low-dose CT and you might have five, six, seven lung nodules showing up in this low-dose CT. The problem is, is not all those are cancer. In fact, like I said, the large majority aren't cancer. And so if it's not clearly cancer, the doctor will say to you, well, we see you've got lung nodules, but we don't know what to do with them. So do you know what the current standard of, of care is today? No. They say, Daniel, it's great seeing you. Please come back in six months to a year and we'll see what grows out in your chest. And then and only then will be, the cancer become actionable. By definition, you've now lost six to 12 months, potentially, if, you, if any of those nodules grow out for the ability to treat that disease earlier. And that's called watchful waiting. And it causes an, an undue amount of stress, obviously, for the patient. But again, from a clinician standpoint, we don't want to treat everything. And we can't simply just biopsy everything in the lung because there's a high probability particularly as you get older, that there will be complications such as a collapsed lung from the procedure. And so many times the, the decision is just to simply wait. This is where we think that a technology like early could come in. What if we could take a look and monitor those nodules in situ? 
what if we could add a molecular construct back after somebody comes back with high risk factors and lung nodules? Wouldn't it be great if we could send in a molecular construct and essentially look at that roadmap of those six or seven nodules and say, that one's malignant and all those are benign. Or, or Daniel, all of your nodules are benign. We'll monitor you still in a couple of years time, but in the meantime, we don't have to worry about anything growing out in the immediate sense. That's really the powerful um, aspect of this technology that we're really hoping to take advantage of for early cancer detection. More so, so much in a clarification of diagnosis as opposed to a direct screening methodology. In that regard, how price sensitive do you think physicians will be to using the technology when they should? Yeah, I think um, I think the pricing, um, you know, I'll break it down two separate ways here. I think clinicians at the end of the day are most going to be concerned about whether or not how accurate the technology is. I think that, you know, what we worry about now is, is, is not so much false negatives. Um, false negatives are sort of what the current standard of care is, is, is that we wait to see what grows and gets bigger. But cl clinicians and physicians are more going to worry about false positives. And so I think from a clinical validation standpoint, that's, that's the road that, that lies ahead for the company. Now, on the pricing side of things, that's a discussion for the payers. And, and ultimately... Um, what I will say is, is that our technology is designed to be relatively low cost. Um, you know, you might hear nucleic acid and you might think about some of the gene therapy programs that are out there costing millions of dollars for a single shot. This is not that sort of value proposition. Um, the technology itself is meant to be fairly low cost. It is meant to have a PET imaging component associated with it. So there is the cost of the PET technology. And ultimately, though, um, how payers decide to reimburse is really dependent upon how much of the information from the assays that we develop go to detecting um, cancer earlier when it's more treatable in these patients. And, and the calculus of that value proposition is really dependent upon how well it works. And so there's, there's a lot of dovetailing um, with efficacy from the clinician standpoint to give them confidence to prescribe this type of of um, detection to their patients, but the value proposition has to be there and it has to be fair, fairly low enough in cost, not substantially higher than current technologies, um, such that the payers say, yes, it would be great if we could have this tool employed because it would prevent all these sort of end stage care costs that massively inflate as, as people go through developing late stage cancer. My understanding is that this same approach that you have for diagnosing cancers can be used to treat cancers as well. Can you explain? Yeah, that's, it's, um, I, you know, I alluded to it a little bit earlier is, is that, you know, essentially there's a certain amount of plasticity or the ability to modify the genetic constructs that we are developing you know, um, because it is gene-based systems means that we could swap in different types of promoters or different types of reporters. And on the reporter side of things, I've, I've already sort of alluded to this. We currently have a clinical study in Australia where we're looking at the production of a blood-based biomarker in response to uh, people with late stage and, and um, stage three, stage four lung cancer. 
But where the company's been going is, is swapping out that marker for something that can image um, where the cancer is. Now, if you followed some of the, the developments in cancer therapeutics over the last few years, um, one approach that people have been taking um, is to couple imaging with therapeutic potential. And the technique or the, the field is broadly described as theragnostics, right? Thera, thera, meaning for the therapeutic portion of it, and gnostics, meaning the diagnostic portion of it. And so people over the last few years have been looking at the ability to image where, for instance, a gene, uh, a protein called SSTR2 that's produced in rare neuroendocrine tumors um, shows up and, and people have been then using um, affinity-based reagents coupled with uh, radionuclides. So with, with radiologic agents, you could have many different types of energies. Certain energies of radionuclides are more suited for imaging or taking a look with specialized equipment, such as a PET scan or where a tumor may be located. But then it's very easy and convenient to use that same type of imaging technique and just swap out the radionuclide that might have helped you see where the cancer is and come in with higher energy, something that may emit what's called an alpha particle or beta particle, and it imparts much more energy uh, to kill the cancer very specifically with radioactivity, um, but localized in an affinity-based way. So it's not spread entirely throughout your body, but localized to a very specific point. PSMA was a, a, a protein which has recently been approved for both imaging as well as therapeutics. And this is what we're really the first approach that we're taking at early is, is that our imaging-based markers in which we are now expressing foreign proteins on the cell surface, not only help us identify where the cancer is inside the body, but the but current studies are undergoing um, here in the lab in our preclinical models to show that we can simply swap out the radionuclide and also kill the cancer as well, um, just with something that has higher uh, radioactive energy to be able to, to, to effectively reduce and shrink down those tumors. Where is early in terms of development? Yeah, I, I think I mentioned it uh, a, a little bit before, is, is that we are a clinical stage company. Um, we uh, currently have an ongoing human clinical trial in Australia uh, in which we are looking at the production of blood-based biomarkers in stage three and stage four cancer patients in relation to their tumor status. And we assess their tumor status by metabolic PET or PET-CT. And so the idea is, is that we expect to see um, much more biomarker being produced when the cancers are larger and more aggressive. Um, so the human clinical study for that is ongoing and, and data readout should be coming in the next year or so. And then on the um, imaging side of things, we are now moving our preclinical studies from murine models um, which are just simply, you know, mice that we implant with tumors. And we're now working with larger animal species to be able to ask the question, can we detect and image the tumors within these animal models? Very specifically, we've been working with veterinary oncology clinics uh, across the United States. And at veterinary oncology clinics, these are filled with people whose pets have developed cancer. 
and they want to come in and they want to take a look or they want to ask their veterinarian, is there better ways to be able to diagnose the cancer in my dogs? And, and this really serves as a really great model population for us to be able to study and, and ask the question, can we image the tumors in these dogs more better than traditional methodologies? And so that's where the company is moving forward right now. Um, and we hope to be in the clinic with that program in the next, next couple of years as well. And what is the regulatory path for you? Does this require an FDA approval? Or are you doing this as a clear lab model? Yeah, it's, it's, a, um, it's a question that we have pondered and have had many discussions with regulatory agencies, not only such as the FDA, but also the regulatory agencies in Australia that are currently um, uh, responsible for the oversight of our clinical trial being performed there. The, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that we are giving something back to the patients. These are nucleic acids. So as a purely diagnostic play, um, this will not be regulated simply as a, as a diagnostic or, you know, can be performed in a CLIA lab, much like a liquid biopsy. Instead, this will require oversight uh, by various agencies within FDA. I think what makes it challenging um, from a regulatory standpoint is, is that there's, a, there's an obvious biologic product here being the nucleic acid, and there's a diagnostic component to it as well. And so we've already initiated several conversations with the agencies. There's, there's for instance, a, an office called the Office of Combination Products or Combinatorial Products, and we've already started the engagement with them um, to understand ultimately the long-term regulatory path. Um, what I always like to say is, is with the FDA or any regulatory agency worldwide, start the conversations early and start the conversations often. And that's um, self-advice that we've heeded. And, and uh, yes, we continue those discussions to understand the pathway as well as describe the product to the agency. David Suey, co-founder and chief scientific officer of Early. David, thanks so much for your time today. Daniel, thanks. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.